you know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stort Show. Let's go. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited that you are joining me today. I've got a great interview for you with my friend, Claire Yosa. And Claire is the UK's leading authority on imposter syndrome, the author of eight books, and an expert in the neuroscience of psychology, of performance. Her original training as an engineer specializing in Six Sigma and lean manufacturing means her inspirational approach to helping business leaders is grounded in logic and practical common sense, creating breakthroughs, not burnout. Claire's most recent book is called Ditching Imposter Syndrome, and it includes a simple five-step process to do just that. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Andy. Yeah, so great to have you on. And it's interesting because you've done all this research and you've got this book, and, and I love talking to people with research and books and things that can help me and my listeners. But it's also cool because I've had a kind of a insider view to this whole process because mm. you and I met last year at the Upreneur Summit in London. And uh, we joined a mastermind group together. And uh, we've kind of been supporting each other through a lot of different things. You as you've been going through creating this new book and, and releasing it and all the stuff that goes into that. Me as I'm organizing a conference coming up. Yep. And we're recording this in October and getting together again in London just a month from now. And uh, I know you've been promoting this a bunch in the UK. And now we get an opportunity to bring this to the US where I don't know, roughly 80% of my listeners are. So welcome. This is really cool. Thank you. So I put a little bit of background in there, but I'd love for you to you know fill in some gaps because yeah. you've done a lot of work. You started as an engineer, you got into psychology and have written a number of books. So maybe share a little bit of background on how you got to where you are today. Of course. So I knew I wanted to be an engineer when I was 15. I was one of those weird kids that actually knew what they wanted to do. And it was because I wanted to know how car engines worked. I, I just, and my physics teacher couldn't tell me. So I thought, you know what? I'll go to uni and find out. My A-level physics teacher t warned me not to. <laughs> so I made sure I got the best degree I could, kind of despite him, you know, to prove him wrong. I spent 10 years in engineering, specializing in Six Sigma and lean manufacturing. So for me, that was all about how to, to pull out the bits of a process that are important and ditch the fluff. And that's something that's really important to me. And I still do that in my current work. When I'm working with leaders, whether it's training, whether it's one-to-one, -one, whether it's writing a book, I get rid of the fluff. And I've just got this thing about being able to spot what will work in what order to make it really easy. And after 10 years in engineering, well, one of the things that triggered me leaving was actually imposter syndrome. That whole, what if they find out I'm not good enough? I didn't belong. It didn't matter what my appraisals looked like. It didn't matter what the feedback was. That 3 a.m. soundtrack was getting in my way. And it definitely contributed to me going traveling for a year. And when I came back, I, <laughs> I'd been running guerrilla market research in my engineering days. So we were working with car engines. We would hire a hotel room in Stuttgart in Germany and interview 300 customers to find out what they loved and hated about the engine. And I got this addiction to being that conduit, that communicator between the engineers, the marketing team and the customers, because it's very hard to do that in market research. We had some incredible breakthroughs. And then that meant when I came back from traveling, I ended up as head of market research at Dyson, as in fancy vacuum cleaners and hand dryers. 
<laughs> yeah. So when I got there, I'd been studying psychology. I qualified as an NLP trainer. And I realized that actually I wanted to make a bigger difference in the world than I could in somebody else's business. And that's when 2003, I took the leap, set up my own business, specializing in working with senior leaders who are on that journey to become the director, the board members, the partners in the next 12 months, but they know they've got those self-imposed oil ceilings. And from day one, every client I've worked with pretty much has had imposter syndrome at some level getting in their way. It's like it's the block that's still there when you fixed the mindset and the self-doubt and the limiting beliefs. It's the one that lurks under the surface, like that crocodile in a Florida pond, yeah? It's there (laughs) waiting to get you if you dare to put your toe in the water of stretching a comfort zone. Yeah, and can you maybe back up and kind of define for us, for those not really familiar with imposter syndrome, what does that mean and what do the symptoms look like for people that are dealing with it? So I define it as being the difference between who you think you need to be to achieve something and how you see yourself as currently being. That's the imposter syndrome gap. So it's very much at that identity level. It's not, I can't do that. I don't have that skill, which is a behavioral level. It's right below the surface at who am I to publish that book? Who am I to speak on that stage? If I stretch myself and take that next level of promotion, what if they realize that I'm not good enough and I don't know as much as I should? So when you're looking at team dynamics, these are the people who are your rising stars who suddenly hit this absolute ceiling and won't go any further. And if you pull them to take them further, they start showing all sorts of stress-related behaviors. They can become people pleasers. They can become nitpickers. They can become even bullies micromanagers. So you see this sudden transformation in personality that's a warning that possibly imposter syndrome is at play. So it's all about who am I to be doing that despite the external evidence that you're more than good enough. Would you say there's almost a a gap between how you perceive yourself and how others perceive you and the way you're showing up? Absolutely. And one of the things that means this gets overlooked so much in businesses is because to the outside world, that person seems confident and successful. They might well be going on stage at the corporate events and speaking. They might be heading up a division, but at three o'clock in the morning, they're dying inside. And this affects their performance, their productivity. It can affect their team. It affects their division's profit. And it becomes contagious because if this person is doing those stress response behaviors, then it ripples on down through the team. And you can have an amazing team that actually becomes scared to take risks or to speak up or to make mistakes. So it can cripple an entire business division. Because they see their leader or their manager who is afraid to step up or speak up sometimes. And a lot of that is due to the fact that not they don't necessarily think they have some skills, but that they really don't have what it takes to do that actual job. And someone, if they speak up too much, they're going to be found out. So that is definitely one aspect. And the other aspect is they, they become perfectionists. Mm. And so that person will set their standards so high, but because when you're in a leadership role, your performance is measured by what your team delivers, they start to micromanage their team members. 
and they start to criticize people if there's a mistake and blame starts getting thrown around. And you're really looking for a change in these behaviors. Somebody who used to be brilliant, collaborative, consultative, suddenly becoming this micromanaging bully boss that means everybody's terrified of making a mistake. And all that's actually happened is this senior leader is terrified that they'll get found out. So they need to hold their team to the same ridiculously high internal standards. Right. And they, I'm guessing they see their team's work as a reflection on them. And they're afraid if their team makes mistakes, it's going to reflect poorly on them. They'll be found out that they're actually not a very good manager. They're not very good at what they do. And therefore, they'll be fired. This is where people go in their minds all the time, right? And therefore, they need to micromanage every step, not realizing that what that actually does is it diminishes their team's ability to get things done and and makes them not want to work there anymore. Exactly. So what I've seen over the last 15 years of specializing in this is that somebody getting promoted who's got imposter syndrome can turn a thriving team into a toxic working environment in under two months. Wow, that's quick. Well, let's get into some of the research. I know you've done a lot of research around this. Yeah. What does some of the research show you about how this shows up for different people? I know it can be different for men and women. You know, what are you seeing there? So there's this a very big myth that imposter syndrome only affects women. Okay. And that is actually because back in 1978, when Pauline Clance and Suzanne Eames did the original research that coined the phrase imposter syndrome, the imposter phenomenon, they only interviewed women. Okay. So this means we've got this urban myth that it's just a girl thing. So the first thing that came out in the research study I've just published, which was 2,000 respondents and 50 qualitative interviews, the first finding that came out is it affects men and women at extremely similar levels. So for those respondents who knew what imposter syndrome was, 49% of men and 52% of women are struggling with it daily or regularly, which is shocking. Okay. The thing that came out, though, is that men and women tend to handle it very differently. So guys tend to push it down and that comes with mental health risks and stress and anxiety because they're pushing down that strong emotional response. Imposter syndrome is actually driven by what's called the autonomic nervous system. So it means Mm. it's totally outside our control with those triggers if we haven't dealt with them. But with women, what it was doing was making them shut down the opportunities they were going for. So they weren't going for promotions. They weren't speaking up with their ideas. So guys were pushing on through. Women were really allowing it to get to them and affect their behavior. And another fascinating male-female finding is for men, when they get promoted to a leadership level, imposter syndrome rates and severity goes down. For women, it goes up. Interesting. And when I did the depth interviews to find out why this was, for the guys, it was like, well, okay, I'm director now. So I don't need to worry anymore. I don't need to prove myself. Yeah, my job title proves I can do this. Yeah, this kind of defines me and and proves that I am worth this. Exactly. And what was happening with the women was now I've been promoted to this level. The spotlight is on me. And if I make a mistake, they're even more likely to find out I'm not good enough and I don't belong. Mm. So this is something why it's really, really important when somebody is having that leadership development discussion to be aware of whether they're running imposter syndrome and might need that support. Because what we also found in the research is that guys will go for promotion in order to grow into that role. Right. Women wait till they feel completely ready and qualified, by which point they've been leapfrogged by the last 10 guys in the queue. Right. 
Yeah. Which is, of course, research that was made famous by Sheryl Sandberg in the book Lean In and, and several other places. And what you're saying is it, it kind of correlates with how you see imposter syndrome showing up that men might be sort of confidently applying for these things they don't necessarily qualify for. Inside, yeah. they may be feeling like, oh my God, I hope nobody finds out that I can't really do this. Exactly that. And what we also found in the research is that women are more likely at that senior level, if they want a promotion or a pay rise, to apply externally, to leave the company they love, because for them, the shame of publicly being found to have applied and failed is how they describe it, means there's no way they could stay. Whereas what the guys were often doing is if there was promotion available, they were actually launching a campaign (laughs) to get people to support them. They were going around and and networking, saying, look, I'm going to go for this role. Can you support me? Will you give me a good word? Yeah. And the women were leaving instead. So interesting. And that obviously sounds like it could be one of many, but possibly a big driver for you know, the pay gap and the gap, why we see so many more men, obviously higher percentage of men in executive positions. And of course, there's many other factors at play, pregnancies and everything else. But it sounds like a big thing is they're just not as willing to go for the positions or stay with a company to go for an executive position because they're going to go outside. So there were three core factors. We actually looked at the gender pay gap. And this is from the UK perspective, but a lot of this will overlap in the USA internationally. And the three drivers that were found in the study were one, the very masculine environment at the most senior levels of the company. And it was found that the women who reach those levels tend to behave more like men in order to fit in. That's not every company, but a lot of companies I interviewed had that layer of management beyond which the collaborative approach, you know, that feminine aspect of leadership was less valued and you had to shut that down and behave more like a guy and suddenly politics came in. So that was one factor. The other factor that came out really strongly is this lack of flexible working and the fact that women felt forced to choose between the longer hours a leadership role would require and spending quality time with their families. Now, obviously there are men out there as well for whom that's a difficult choice. But for women, that was a much stronger driver. So they were actually applying for roles, for example, after maternity leave that they were overqualified for because they didn't want to have to do the hours and the international travel that leadership roles would take. And the flexibility was not there. And the third factor was that imposter syndrome, because these women are more than good enough to be at board level, to be the CEOs. But whilst they're spending their 3 a.m. sleep talk convincing themselves that they're not, the likelihood of them going for those roles and excelling is really low. That makes sense. So interesting. Now, you mentioned a little while back that 52% of women and 49% of men are dealing with or suffering from this imposter syndrome on a regular basis. So is there a division there between, you know, let's, let's stay with women, women who are dealing with imposter syndrome being less likely to apply for those things and women who don't deal with that, maybe for some reason they have a lot more confidence in themselves and belief in themselves that they are more willing to apply for those executive roles. Absolutely. So when I look at the stats, when I, I didn't ask people hypothetically what they would do, we asked them what they had done in the past year. Okay, so these are from the last 12 months. 56% of women had regularly not spoken up with great ideas or controversial opinions for fear of being criticized due to imposter syndrome. And that means that their leadership team doesn't see their potential as much as they would with someone without it. 25% had turned down opportunities they secretly wanted. 
35% in the past year had not put themselves forward for a promotion or an award that they knew they deserved. And 37% of women with imposter syndrome had not asked for a pay rise that they knew they deserved in the past year. Mm, Interesting. But imposter syndrome, you can do something about it. This is the crazy thing. Yeah, that's what I want to get into. So (laughs) I know you have ways of spotting this. So for people, you know, the four P's model, for people working in organizations, you're thinking, oh my gosh, I've got to help some of my executives that could be dealing with this. How do we find out if they are or not? Okay. So when we did the research, we found that there are four, four main symptoms of imposter syndrome and they fall under the four P's model. And they actually fit with the fight, flight, freeze response. So that autonomic nervous system, that stress response, that fear response, and they, over, they overlap perfectly with the behaviors we were seeing. So the first one is perfectionism. And only 16% of respondents admitted to this as a result of imposter syndrome, but 52% showed perfectionism behaviors, such as kind of going to war with a project, setting their standards so high that it's almost unachievable. But if you do achieve those standards, writing it off as a fluke or luck or a one-off, okay? So perfectionism, somebody who, you're looking for somebody who has become a perfectionist, And the way I always tell the difference is you look at the shoes, okay? Somebody who's a natural born perfectionist, their shoes Mm. will be perfect, their nails are perfect, their hair is perfect. Somebody who's doing it as a stress response, it's their working behaviors suddenly become perfectionism. You'll hear them criticizing other people's work. You'll see them going to the nth degree. You might hear them after a meeting saying, oh my goodness, did you see the typo on slide 72 when the rest of the presentation was brilliant? So that's the first P. And that fits with the fight response. You are going to war with that project. Okay. The second one is procrastination, which was 62% of respondents. And this is looking incredibly busy, but they're not actually making progress. Okay. It's like that duck's feet underwater. Yeah. They're, they're really busy. And on the outside, they might seem quite serene, but you'll see over time, they're not making the progress that that amount of effort should be producing. The third P is paralysis, which is very common in the corporate world. So this one fits with the freeze response. So in the perfection procrastination, they're running from the project, the paralysis, they're just rabbit in headlights, as we say in the UK. You must have played hide and seek with a three-year-old, yeah? Of course, and I have kids now who play it all the time. (laughs) So you're playing it with a three-year-old and they kind of hide their eyes like this and say, you can't see me, Mm -hmm. yeah? And the paralysis response is like that with a challenging project. It's as though the person is saying, no, no, it's not there. It's not there. Right. And they leave it and leave it and leave it. And then they use the last minute adrenaline rush to push on through and get it done, even if it means pulling an all-nighter. And that's incredibly stressful for them. That has a huge ripple effect on teams if there are key deliverable deadlines in that project. So that's the paralysis response. And the fourth one, there's a new terminology in the fight, flight, freeze response, certainly in the UK, I'm sure it's in the States as well, which is fawning. So fawning, this comes under the P of people pleasing. So this is somebody who suddenly starts taking on loads more projects to help people that maybe are outside their remit or attending meetings they don't really need to be in and being super helpful. It's an enormous issue in the entrepreneurial world where it's leading to discounting, lack of clear boundaries. But even in the corporate world, it's people saying yes when they want to say no, 
which leads to overwhelm, it leads to stress, it leads to performance and productivity issues. Wow, interesting. All right, so we got perfectionism, procrastination, paralysis, and people pleasing. I'm trying to figure out where what I have done in my own journey of uh, of imposter syndrome because I know I dealt with it. I'm definitely not a perfectionist, although you know I tend to, as a facilitator, dress up and and put a tie on sometimes when it's unnecessary. And I'd always make the joke that you know if people don't have any idea what I'm talking about, at least I'll look nice. And maybe that was an indicator, you know, as I was as I was going into that. But yeah, I could see the procrastination and then the people pleasing like, hey, if you build a great network and you make sure people like you, then mm. chances are they're not going to judge you as much. They're not going to fire you when they find out that you're not very good at your job. Exactly, exactly. And because all of these are driven by stress, as I said earlier, it means it's part of the autonomic nervous system. So they're not within somebody's conscious control. So it's not very easy to say to somebody, would you just stop procrastinating? Because you actually have to deal with the fear inside that's driving that stress behavior. Mm. But on the outside, these are four Ps that if somebody suddenly becomes more of a perfectionist or they're procrastinating more or they're avoiding a project more or working longer hours is the classic perfectionism, actually. Yeah. <laughs> or they suddenly start becoming very you know, that people pleasing, wanting to be liked, wanting to collaborate, not making decisions on their own, they're early warning signs that it's worth having the discussion about imposter syndrome to find out whether that person's struggling with it. And then you can give them the support they need because you can clear it. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of support, what do we do? How do we help them or help ourselves? So the biggest thing a company can do is actually to open up the conversation. Almost everybody I spoke to in the depth interviews had been lying awake at three o'clock in the morning thinking they were the only person that felt that way. And that's so common when I run workshops or give talks on this. There'll be somebody in the audience who says, I've just realized I'm not alone. And I've been beating myself up because I thought I was the only person that had this. So a really positive first step is to have, some, have a talk, have a speaker come in and talk yeah. about imposter syndrome in a way that opens up the discussion because a lot of CEOs are scared it will become a badge of honor, justifying poor performance. Mm. So helping people to talk about this because the respondents in the research found that by being able to just say to somebody, that was an imposter syndrome thought I just had there, it takes so much of the potency out. Yes, you still need to do that deeper dive work, but it stops it being something quite so scary. And the really big thing with imposter syndrome is this shame, that identity level. I must be a bad person. I'm not good enough if I feel this way. Right. So opening up the discussion, the next really important step a business can do is to get the facts out there because there are a lot of myths like it's inevitable or it's incurable, but it's a sign of peak performance, it means I've got high potential or I need fear to perform. By getting the facts there for people, it helps them to clear those myths that helps them to open up to the idea that they can do something about it. And then it's having the in-house training or the external training to be able to support those people, whether that is through coaching and mentoring interventions, whether that is through courses, the support is there. And you can actually clear this much more easily than most people think once you know how to go below the surface, clear out the triggers, and then it doesn't need to come up anymore. Yeah. So for organizations that want to help their people that are dealing with this, it's helping people actually talk about it, opening up a conversation. Yeah. And I like what you said there about, you know, most people think that their own 
anxiety, depression, imposter syndrome, all these things that they're the only ones suffering from this, right? And then you open it up and you find out everybody you work with is thinking very similarly, right? Like we, yeah. none of us feel worthy of our jobs. <laughs> Not everybody, but you know, 50%, right? Half of your coworkers are dealing with this too. Exactly. And then on a daily or regular basis. Yeah. yeah. The day I discovered that imposter syndrome was not just a girl thing it was about 12 years ago. And I was chatting with a board member and he just sat there and he went, no guys get this too. He said, I, I sit there every board meeting I'm in thinking, God, what if they realize I don't belong here? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, wow. It's there. If you look around the room you're in right now, yeah. there will be a good sprinkling. Okay. But not with you. You're like, <laughs> I'm looking around my room. There's nobody here. <laughs> But what am I but doing? But if you're here? in the workplace, there will be a, a large number of people who have this kind of experience. And because it's running at that unconscious level, it does affect our performance, it affects our happiness. Right. I was having a conversation with a colleague today who heard about a CEO who recently took his own life because of imposter syndrome. Wow. Yeah. So for guys, because they push it down. Research study found that men are five times more likely than women to turn to alcohol and medication to handle the stress, anxiety, and depression that imposter syndrome can cause. Living in that much fear every day when it's coming from your own self-talk yeah. is a really difficult place to be. And I think that people who achieve despite that are actually heroes. But let's clear it out so they can achieve because of who they are. Yeah. And let people talk about it. And you're right. I mean, I haven't done the research you have, but just being out there talking to people, my experience is that women are much more social and, and able to open up and talk with each other about their challenges and struggles and things they're dealing with. Yeah. And when I'm with uh, male friends who are not like really close friends, all they want to talk about is sports and nobody is willing to open up and show any type of vulnerability about you know some of the challenges dealing with the work, even though we know that everybody you know, we think we're, we, everyone's walking around and they all have it figured out, right? We're the only ones that don't, but everybody's dealing with challenges. And I have found for my own challenges that when I'm able to open up, that's why I join groups and, and surround myself with great friends that I can have these conversations with because I've dealt with this too. I mean, we're joking about me yeah. looking around the room. There's no one here right now, but I'm running this podcast. I've done over 300 interviews, you know, running podcasts for the last couple of years. People reach out to me regularly telling me how much they appreciate the podcast, how much they've gotten from it. And for a long time, every time I was genuinely surprised, like, I can't believe people are actually listening to this, that they're actually getting things from this, that you're saying all these nice things about me. And I have had that thought, you know, what if people find out that I'm really not that great? You know, I really don't really know that much about talent development or fear or any of the things that I talk about on my podcast. I'm just interviewing other people and the expectations might get too high. But I've I've definitely done some things to move past that. And I want to ask you about how can people that are dealing with those similar things, what can they do to put those thoughts on pause and really move past that imposter syndrome? So the, the first thing, Andy, is I'm going to pull you up on it. That whole, yeah. I really don't know that much. You and I both know that's not true. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what tends not to work, if you want to help somebody really clear imposter syndrome or press pause, if they're going down that cycle, is that is if I just say to you, but, but Andy, you're great. Okay, that doesn't work because there's something in your head, the neural pathways in your head, when you think a thought and it fires off the connections between the synapses and the neurons, they're well ingrained. So if I come in and say, but but Andy, you're great, which I think you are. And Andy, well, right, Claire, you, so you think that, yeah, but you don't really know me. You think that, but you don't really know. Exactly. So can you hear, this is called the backfire effect. Mm. 
Okay. And the backfire effect is where somebody contradicts an opinion that we hold and we dig our heels in. And your inner critic, that unconscious inner dialogue does exactly that. So if a manager comes in and says to a team member, but look at all these great presentations you did do. Oh yeah, but every one of those was a fluke and it's the Icarus effect. And I'm just waiting for my feathers to fall off my wings. Yeah. So the key is this shift has got to come from inside. When somebody's got imposter syndrome, that internal referencing system, their ability to truly objectively judge their performance has got out of kilter. It needs recalibrating. So the first thing is those thoughts go around in your head. The thoughts feed biochemical reactions in the body that create our emotions. They create physical tension, stress, fear, and that feeds the thoughts. So you need to press pause on that cycle. And if you try and have this conversation with someone while they're stressed and while they're stuck in the fear, it won't go in. So I have an ABC process that any manager can use immediately for an intervention, accept, breathe, choose. So the first thing, accept, is that was an imposter syndrome thought. And that's all it is. That was an imposter syndrome thought. As Carl Jung said, what you resist persists. If you've got a thought that's not making you feel great and you try and get rid of it, or you try and fight it or push it away or tell it it's wrong, it's going to fight back. You're giving it all of your attention. By accepting that was an imposter syndrome thought, suddenly it becomes just a thought. Then the next thing, this is my background as a meditation teacher, is breathe. And if you do a really deep breath in through the nose and out with a sigh, just imagining that you're letting that thought go. You do that three times and then a minute of belly breathing. And what this does is it resets the nervous system. So that fight, flight, freeze response stands down. Yeah. And the parasympathetic nervous system, which is our relaxed, okay, happy side, Mm. comes back into balance. So accept the thought, breathe and just let it go. And those sighing breaths, that kind of, they just feel so good. And then the C is choose. Choose a thought to think about your performance that is specific and positive and makes you feel better. So this is how to press an emergency 60-second ABC, accept, breathe to reset, choose something specific and positive to think about about your performance. It helps to rewire the neurology. It helps to train your inner critic to actually be your cheerleader. And it means that if you then have that discussion, the person's in a much, biochemically, they're in a much happier state. They're much more likely to take on your positive feedback and your offers of support. The backfire effect is less likely to kick in. Mm -hmm. And even if you're in the middle of a presentation, you can do the ABC with the less audible sighing and you can turn around an attack of imposter syndrome in just a few seconds. And that buys you the time to, at a later date, look at what the triggers were and clear those out at a deeper level. I love that. And uh, of course, I'm a big fan of meditation and mindfulness. I've been you know, practicing every day for over three years and I've found that it has helped so much. And I've also learned that you know, that same breathing stop and breathe technique helps when you're experiencing you know, anger or fear. You know, something yeah. is triggered in your amygdala, right? Because your yeah. boss says something to you you don't like or a colleague offends you, says something that, that gets you upset that before you write that angry response to your email or whatever it is, yeah. you stop and take a breath and logic can start to take back over in your brain versus that amygdala fight, flight, or freeze like we talked about earlier. 
And it's exactly that. I'm so glad you raised that because that fear response does divert the blood flow from the frontal cortex that does your brilliant thinking to the primal part that only cares about you not being eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. Right. Yeah, there's looking at, right, okay, I'm fighting. And as you say, you send a completely different email. If you're in an emergency situation with imposter syndrome, all of that stress response stands down. Suddenly you can think straight and concentrate again. And it helps you to get through that phase. And also one of the other really big risk factors for imposter syndrome is actually chronic stress. Mm. If somebody's living or working in an environment that is very stressful, it means they're constantly on that high alert with the adrenaline, the cortisol, and the sympathetic nervous system. This can actually trigger hypervigilance where they're constantly on the lookout for threats. If they have a trigger that when my boss uses that tone of voice, I suddenly get scared, he's going to find out I'm not good enough. If they're running chronic stress, the gap between that trigger and the imposter syndrome response becomes zero. Mm. Anything you can do with meditation, with working with different working environments, you know, taking that stress out means that you have a longer fuse on imposter syndrome. So you have more time to spot it and to run the intervention processes that mean it doesn't have to affect you. So the last question I have on this that's coming to mind and something I still struggle with a little bit is as you're doing these things and ditching that imposter syndrome, right? And it may never completely go away, but you're doing the, and you've got more steps and information in your book, Hmm. ditching imposter syndrome. As you're ditching imposter syndrome and you're accepting, right? The fact that you are really good at what you do, right? You're a good manager or you're a good data analyst or you know, I'm a great podcaster and connector and good at interviewing people and bringing people together. As I accept those things and, and as I go more and more into this and really understand my strengths and my weaknesses mm-hmm. and I understand the things that I'm really good at, I'm really good at these things. I feel like there's a balance between confidence and if you go too far, you could be perceived as arrogant, right? Oh, absolutely. So how do you accept these things without showing up as oh, that guy just thinks he is the greatest thing, right? And then now all of a sudden you're arrogant and people, now you are being perceived poorly. So this is another one of the big myths about imposter syndrome is I need imposter syndrome to keep me humble. Right, yes, that does thoughts too. Firstly, some of the listeners, Andy, might not know how to build that confidence. So I've got a technique I use with my clients called three micro wins a day. Hmm. Every single day, you write down three tiny specific things that you did that feel like wins. And what you're doing is actually retraining your brain to spot those at the end of each day. And you do that without fail for a week, and suddenly your brain is spotting them all the time. So that's a technique. If you were listening to Andy talking about how he, what he's doing well, that's how to start training your brain to spot that stuff. As for imposter syndrome being necessary to keep you humble and stop you being arrogant, I would contest that actually being a decent person is enough for that, yeah? We all know when we've gone that bit too far and we've become arrogant. And actually, my research in the last 15 years have shown that the majority of people who come across as arrogant and rather in love with themselves are actually struggling with imposter syndrome. Mm. And that is their stress response, is to make themselves look so great to the outside world that they feel safe. Yeah. So for the vast majority of us, simply being decent human beings, understanding and caring about how others feel and perceive us, that is enough to keep an ego in check. Interesting. So 
if you are a decent, caring person, like we both are, right, then <laughs> that's going to come out and you're not going to be necessarily perceived as an arrogant jerk. I mean, I think you still have to think about how you show up. If I just go around saying to everybody, hey, I'm really great at what I do, then that may rub some people the wrong way. But if they dig deeper and you have more of a conversation and I can say, look, and I usually introduce it this way, I've done a lot of thinking and analysis and I've gone through so many different things to discover what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses. And I own my weaknesses and I don't worry about trying to improve those anymore. I delegate, I outsource, yeah. you know, I find partnerships and help. And I focus on those strengths because I know what those are and I'm confident in my abilities to go take advantage of those. And you know, I want to develop those things even further. And one of the other things that I'm sure you cover this too, that has really helped me move past this idea of, you know, the imposter syndrome and what if people find out that I'm not who they think I am yeah. is to focus on being 100% authentic in who I and how I show up and be my true self and know that that is enough. Yeah. Right. And if they don't like that, then, you know, they can go follow somebody else. That's totally fine. Um, but as long as I'm not trying to be somebody else, then I can't ever be found out as a fraud. Exactly this. And when, when one is talking about skills and strengths and qualities, it's really important to look at what is my intention behind discussing this with someone? Because sometimes the intention is, oh, I do need a bit of an ego boost. And in that case, you're going to come across as big headed. If your intention is, I need them to see this because it's going to help them make a hiring decision, then that's fine. Yeah. So when we look at our intention and then what I talk about in the final of the five stages in ditching imposter syndrome is actually taking off the secret masks and becoming the leader that you were born to be, which is exactly what you're describing, Andy, is showing up with all of who you really are, yep. really connected with that inner genius. So you can make the difference that you're here to make in the world, whether that's through a business, whether it's through your own company, whether it's through voluntary work, taking off the self-defense masks so we right. can be all of that shining being that we really are. Yep. And then we get to really share our gifts in a way that other people find inspiring instead of intimidating. Yeah. Which I think in, in today's economy and world, you know, we're coming to the end of 2019 that people want authentic leaders. They want their leaders to show up transparent and authentic and be exactly. their true selves. And so more and more, I think it's so important to move past the fear and just do that. Uh, Claire, this has been great. Last piece of advice for anybody who is, uh, maybe they're listening and thinking, I definitely deal with this or my colleague is dealing with this. Last piece of advice to, to help them. Is listen without judging and without trying to fix. Mm. Okay. Because the single most important first step when you want to clear out a pattern that you've been running for many years in your life is to be heard without judgment and without somebody trying to shut that pain down. Yeah. So that's real listening, whether it's to somebody else or to yourself and just let somebody be heard. Yeah. You don't need to fix them. If they're ready for fixing, they'll find the solutions that they need. But to be there for somebody and just let them speak, because it might be the first time they've ever talked about how they're feeling. And that is one of the greatest gifts you can give someone on a healing journey so for them to then start taking the inspired action to release that pattern forever. Oh, I love that. I love that. So listen to yourself, to others, find someone who can listen to you, be willing to have a conversation, share all your true thoughts and feelings, be truly vulnerable and things are definitely going to get better. Claire, this has been fantastic, uh, exceeded my expectations. I'm, I love everything that we talked about here. I think it's going to help a lot of people. For anybody listening who wants to 
find out more, maybe get the book or find out about working with you, where's the best place for them to go for that? Okay. For imposter syndrome, the website is ditchingimpostorsyndrome.com. The book's available to order in bookstores and via Amazon and other online retailers. And to find out about my other work, my leadership work, it's clareyosa.com. All right. And we'll put links to all those things in the show notes. Claire, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all of your experience and wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. So thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Andy. All right. Take care. 